Hello and welcome to the first episode of Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the life and death of John Palmer, otherwise known as Goldfinger. This case is such an interesting one, as we'll not only be looking at his, spoiler alert, murder, but also his life of crime that led to his untimely death that remains unsolved to this day. We'll be having a look at some theories at the end, um, but let's get cracking. So on the 24th of June 2015, at the age of 64, John Palmer was shot six times whilst he was in his garden. Shockingly, his death was initially recorded as a tragic accident. I can't believe that that was not picked up. Yeah. Six bullet wounds. Yeah, honestly. The police that got called, they saw he had evidence of heart surgery from the month before. They just assumed he'd fallen off his quad bike and torn open his scar. Shocking, isn't it, really? Paramedics were unable to save him, and his cause of death at first was said to be a pre-existing heart condition. Also, they didn't even realise that this was the body of one of Britain's most notorious gangsters, Goldfinger. You'd think, really, the police would have him under surveillance, or... You'd think so. They would definitely know his address and have some sort of awareness Mm -hmm. of who he was. You'd like to think so, but no. Mm. Just, uh, must have fallen off his quad bike. Does this smack of a cover-up? Wow, we that might they have... wanted him dead, mm-hmm. perhaps. We'll get to that, won't we? Yeah, we will. Also, falling off his quad bike in his garden. Everyone has a quad bike in their garden, don't they? Yeah, well, if you're a multi-millionaire gangster, you probably would, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, if I tried to ride a quad bike across my garden, I think two seconds later I'd be crashing into the front door or something, I don't know. So, John Palmer's life began and ended in crime. He was born in Solihull was one of seven children, and his dad was once a member of the city's Peaky Blinders gang. He often went hungry, and he soon turned to petty thefts and street robbery. People have often said that John Palmer was obsessed with money because he wanted to get away from the poverty that he was born into. We see that a lot, don't we, with people kind of born into that really deprived background. They just will do anything to get out of it, Mm. whether that's committing crime or pursuing sort of, you know, showbiz dreams or something, just to get fame and fortune. (laughs) Exactly. They just kind of go one way or the other, isn't it? Mm. John Palmer was often skipping school. Um, He worked Naughty boy. Naughty boy. He's going to get naughtier. Just you wait. (laughs) He even worked as a runner for a local gang that supplied guns at one point. He left school at 15, he hadn't learned to read or write, and he sold paraffin door to door. He also dealt in second-hand cars, just selling all manner of crap. When he was a teenager, he realised that the fences that he was selling his stolen goods to were making a lot more money than he was. So he was doing all the hard work, giving them the stuff to sell on, and they were making all the money. So he decided to open a shop in Birmingham selling the stolen jewellery that he'd got hold of. That was really successful, so then he moved to Bristol and he set up another stolen jewellery shop. So even though he couldn't read or write, he was pretty clever. Yeah, he had street smarts, as they say. Yeah. Um, why are people called fences? What's that? Why are they I called that? I think it, it's to do with its defence, I think it comes from. Mm-hmm. And it was almost, it's the sort of criminal themselves defending themselves from prosecution. So they would pass the stolen goods to a middleman that was basically nothing to do with the crime. And the idea, I guess, was that the police, the trail ran cold for the police, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, not anything to do with each other. Yeah. To kind of get away with it a bit easier. When he was in his 20s, Palmer began a friendship with notorious criminal Kenneth Noy. That guy's fucking mental. He is much worse than John Palmer. He was involved in all sorts of stuff. Yeah, we might have to um, do an episode on yeah, him one day. Yeah, we can definitely <laughs> do an episode though because he was, I think he was put in prison 
um, maybe like 20 years ago for murder of somebody in a road yeah, rage incident. That's him. Yeah. Um, John Palmer actually helped him when he was like trying to flee the country and stuff like that. They mm. became really good friends, actually. Um, How sweet. I know. Adorable. Yeah. Noy had basically approached Palmer to ask for help because he needed to launder gold. That's how they... Mm. They must have. He must have known they about Palmer. They must have moved in the same kind of world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the perpetrators of Britain's biggest ever robbery had asked Kenneth Noy to help them, inverted commas, recycle twenty-six million pounds worth of gold. And so Noy basically got in touch with Palmer and asked for his expertise. I guess because of like the jewelry, maybe he was doing stuff like that already with selling the second hand, like not second hand. The stolen jewellery. I think from what I know of jewellers as well, and I'm not tarnishing all jewellers with the same brush, but quite often they're involved in criminal activity. That makes every jeweller sound dodgy. I know I shouldn't say that, but I don't know. I just think (laughs) they just do move in a different world. And I guess maybe it's because they can recycle stolen goods really Mm. easily. They've got the the equipment they need to melt stuff down. And and then they've got a shop, which in a way acts as a fence. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, so basically over a year, Noy Palmer and then their associates, they would melt down the gold, smuggle it out of the country in private planes and lorries, and then they'd re-import the gold with what they obviously looks like legitimate paper trail. So they would be then bringing it back in. They even claimed back VAT, like 15% VAT on each deal. God, the audacity of that. The audacity. Back when it was 15% as well. Yeah. So that heist the biggest ever robbery in britain that's known as the brinks mat robbery which probably everybody everyone's heard of that yeah Yeah, it was this record amount of cash bullion and diamonds that was stolen loads of the gold has never been found and the case is still open today um maybe some of that gold was buried in john palmer's garden it could well be um we could just do a whole episode on that case really to be honest it's so well known though i don't i don't know i think people know it i'll give a brief um, explanation no, of what happened, bother. just in don't case, bother. just in case um, people don't know. Because you've written it already. Because yeah. I've written it, so I want to read it. <laughs> obviously, so six robbers basically broke into the Brinks Mat Warehouse in the Heathrow International Trading Estate in London. Um, it was all thanks to a security guard who'd supplied them with keys and security details. They broke in, poured petrol over the staff, and threatened those staff with lit matches. Can you imagine I how know, terrifying? How that would be? awful. Um, to make sure they gave them the safe combinations. The robbers that broke in were expecting to steal about 3.2 million in cash. Only 3.2 million in cash. And I think back Only. then, that would have been quite easy to launder. Yeah, I don't think that's too much if you're a proper good criminal. Yeah. Um, but they were really surprised when they found the haul because it was worth more than £26 million at that point. So yeah, Um, going off topic as well, but something else that I found out when I was researching this is the curse of Brinks Matt. Now, I love a conspiracy theory or a mystery, and basically more than 20 people associated with the heist have died. Is that though because people that would be involved in a heist like that would lead dangerous lifestyles, I guess? (sighs) Yes, but also I like a conspiracy theory, Mark, so it could be a curse. Let's no, I do. Curse, I do yeah. think it's. I do get that. Yeah, if you if you move in those circles, you're more likely. These people carry to... guns and they're yeah. dealing with the underworld, um, committing crimes all the time. So that they're high true. risk anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of the notable ones was in 1990. There was a guy called Charlie Wilson. He had laundered some of the proceeds of this robbery. He was shot on his front doorstep. 
The shooter also shot his dog. Harsh. Yeah, honestly, that's more upsetting, I think, when it's the dog. That's so common as well. I know, no, why do they so always many, do that? But in so many cases, yeah. Um, Keith Headley, he was shot on his yacht. Nice. Standard. Obviously, the I'm, yacht part, you know, not being yeah, shot. Obviously on a yacht. Um, Solly Nahome, who'd helped to melt down the gold bars, he was also shot outside his home. Brian Perry, who was one of Noy's associates, he was shot dead in 2001. George Francis in 2003. And... Good old John Palmer was also mm. shot, but I'm giving you spoilers, we'll get to that. In 1985, Noy killed an undercover policeman in his garden. When the police raided his house, they found gold bars and linked Palmer to him and the two of them to the heist. While it couldn't be confirmed for definite that that gold was from the Brinks Map robbery, they then started looking into Palmer's company and it found, they found out that basically they were evading tax. They ordered the company to pay £80,000 in unpaid taxes and Palmer was named as one of 20 people that was linked to the robbery and they were trying to find links with, with who was kind of involved in that. Conveniently, Palmer was on holiday in Spain when the police raided his company. I think he literally left like two days before they raided. He would have known. He would have had he would a have contact known. in the police. For Definitely. Sure, yeah. The directors of the company were arrested but he was out of the country. He sent his family back to England, so the people, like all of his family who he was with at the time, he sent them back to England, sold some assets, and he basically moved to Tenerife using £30,000 that he borrowed from his brother, and he started investing in villas. Mm. So he kind of sent them back, stayed away from the country, and he couldn't then be put on trial for the crime of his company evading tax. Um, he bought these villas, and actually by the peak of his success, he had 450 villas. That's I'd like mental. just one. I want one. <laughs> he was, despite him being a criminal, he was really successful, a successful businessman. Just, mm. um, just dodgy. Just, yeah, just not kind of following <laughs> the law. But yeah. had he put his mind to doing things legitimately, he oh would have most likely still been really successful. Absolutely. Can you imagine what he would have done if he'd learned to read and write as well? Yeah. But then would he have made this much money? No. Yeah, probably not. And he probably loved the lifestyle of... Mm being a big gangster and people knowing him and being yeah, scared of him. Yeah, definitely. His companies that he owned were based in Essex and he controlled 13 resorts. But, obviously, the companies aren't what they seem on the surface and they were actually scams. So the first main fraud scheme that they did was they would get people to buy a second timeshare property and they would promise, like Palmer's companies would promise, that they would sell the person's original profit uh, property with a huge profit. So the customers were given a no-lose guarantee. And the salesmen, honestly, they were so good at building excitement. So they'd promise freebies. They'd offer them gifts. If they had kids, they'd like give the kids toys. I think they still do that, timeshare. Oh, my God. People. Of course yeah. they do. It's so well known for being so heavily... You know, that real hard sell. Definitely. These guys would spend up to six hours pitching to people. I'm not being funny. If you heard someone talking about something for six hours, you're going to believe it. And also, if you're, they're plying you with free drinks mm -hmm. and looking after you, you kind of sat there loving it. Yeah, exactly. So they'd spend like six hours pitching. And then if the customer did decide to purchase something... They'd ding a bell. If, you probably have no choice. Well, yeah. That. When the customer decided yeah. to purchase anything, they'd ding a bell and they'd pop a bottle of champagne for a celebratory toast. Oh, that is so 80s sales. I know, yeah. amazing. But to be fair, I'd do anything for a bottle of champagne, so... You probably would. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, this isn't going to be a surprise to you, 
but hundreds of people lost money on the sales of their original timeshares because either the profits were greatly exaggerated or Palmer's company didn't sell the first property, so they were just left with two villas and they were paying for both of them because obviously they hadn't sold that first one. So um, yeah, people lost loads of money on that. The second scam then was encouraging people to buy a timeshare, so if they didn't already have one, and they would be encouraged to buy it so they could rent it out to other holiday makers. So they were told, get this timeshare, the rent that you're gonna get in is gonna be like more than 900 pounds a week, and you'll pay off the cost of the villa really fast. Basically, it's gonna, you're gonna make your money back within no time. People were basically lost, like they lost thousands of pounds. One person actually lost as much as 17,000 pounds. I think as well, when, we, when you look at some of these career criminals and these gangsters, it's easy to look at them and almost deify them, mm. that they're so successful, they've not really, you know, it's a victimless crime, they've not really done any harm, but yeah, definitely these are people that have lost their entire life savings and their lives have been ruined, so, you know, this is a bad guy. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the thing. It is easy to think of it as almost like, a, not a victimless crime, but you think of it as like, oh, you know, it doesn't... To these people, it was their life savings, It could have been example. the end of the world for them. Yeah. It's that white-collar crime, that white-collar crime where fraud is lumped into that. But yeah, they're totally victims at the end of it. Mm. One of um, Palmer's sub-companies managed to get over 6,000 people's villas on its book. So they got like £400,000 in registration fees and then didn't rent out any of those villas. God. I know. They purposefully would use complicated and misleading paperwork to confuse the customers. Probably because he couldn't read or write himself. No, so. it was because they were trying oh, okay, to confuse yeah. them. <laughs> but yeah, he wouldn't have known what he was getting no. them to sign either. Um, quite often those customers were like retirement age, so mm. they might not be as switched on, I don't know. But basically they would... That's harsh. Yeah, that is probably quite harsh. That's really harsh. That's really harsh. They've, okay. they've had the life experience that to is true. probably be more wary of something. But then like they this. weren't. But then if they're elderly, perhaps, if you're talking well into retirement, mm. maybe they're, they were vulnerable. And they also would make sure that in that misleading or complicated paperwork, there were no get-out clauses. So even once you'd then signed up, that was it, you'd signed up. And I would say there is probably regulation or a lot more regulation around the sale of timeshares mm. now because they're still done it's still oh my god it's so got a bad popular, rep, yeah but yeah i would say it just wouldn't have been regulated at all back then yeah they were really savage to the people they scammed as well so one woman the one who'd lost 17 grand she burst into tears in the office because she'd been scammed out of 17 grand i think i'd cry a lot um they called security and got her removed <laughs> because she was making a fuss That's isn't terrible. that awful yeah. Um, they'd also s sort of approach people and sell scratch cards. So this one couple from West Yorkshire were approached and this tout was selling these scratch cards and they were told that they'd won a prize. So they were taken to a timeshare complex and the salesman said that you can buy the timeshare and sell it off within months, you'd make £1,500. If you don't sell it at all, you'll get your money back. Um, obviously a scam as well. And they ended up losing five grand. they would taken out a bank loan to pay for it and had to spend five years repaying it. Gosh. Yeah. When they tried to complain about the lies that they were told, they were then, it was basically told, that's just good salesmanship. Mm. So harsh. Palmer's criminal behaviour went further than this as well. So to ensure that his touts got the best spots to approach potential customers, he had a group of henchmen who would, who would basically scare off rival companies. 
These men were known as clumpers because they would clump people with baseball bats. Fuck. People also went missing without a trace. One of them is rumoured to be propping up an apartment block. With the amount of building that, that mm-hmm. would have been happening in Spain, it would have been so easy to yeah. get rid of bodies and put them in foundations. So exactly. I, would, I would say anyone that went missing was yeah most probably murdered and their body was hidden. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's like Brookside, isn't it? Body buried under the patio. <laughs> exactly. Bit vintage, but... Bit vintage, but there you go. Works for some. Exactly. Um those clumpers would also tip the rivals over the edges of balconies so that others could hear their screams as a warning. Oh. It's just horrible. They'd smash up other people's properties. They'd set their cars on fire. They would demand protection money from local bars if they sold sex and drugs. So obviously they're not going to go to the police and you know say anything about this. People were stabbed. People were shot. But nobody would ever talk to the police. There are rumours that people were taken up a nearby volcano and thrown in, Um, so the bodies are never going to be found. I probably see that would be possible. It's probably easier to just put them in the concrete and just something that's just been built. Um, A retired policeman told the Daily Mail that on one occasion there was a young Spanish couple who were attacked in their car. They had nothing to do with any of this, but they were just mistaken for a rival gang. They were beaten with baseball bats outside Palmer's timeshare complex, but then the police couldn't find anyone who'd admit to knowing anything about the crime. There is a murder that Palmer was linked to as well, where a former employee and his wife were ambushed as they drove home separately from a restaurant. They were dragged out of their cars. The woman was murdered in front of her husband, who they tortured, and then they slit his throat. Basically, people who talked about it, but obviously nothing official, said that Palmer was furious with the wife because she wouldn't testify against her husband on Palmer's behalf. Um, and he actually went to their funerals as well. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Basically, even though the police couldn't like link him with any actual crimes, they did investigate all these angry complaints from all the customers. And soon he was kicked off the island because they saw him as an undesirable. Mm, the police are very different, I think, in Spain, Tenerife. You know, they would probably investigate a little bit, but probably be more like, this isn't our problem, just go home. Get rid of him. Yeah. So he'd gone back to Spain and he'd kind of carried on his fancy lifestyle, left Tenerife, gone back to Spain. Um, But then Britain was about to sign an extradition treaty with Spain, so Palmer tried to flee to Brazil. Pretty stupid of him, his passport was out of date. So when he tried to get in, obviously couldn't get to Brazil, got sent back to the UK. Um, but finally, he actually had to then stand trial for his involvement in the Brinks Mac robbery. So I guess they must have just been waiting for him to finally be back in the UK before they could properly charge him. Um, so he was the one that was melting down the gold to ship abroad um, before they brought it back. And somehow he managed to convince the old Bailey jury that, yeah, he'd melted down the gold, but he didn't know where it'd come from. Kind of fair enough. Mm, so he got acquitted. Seems to be the story of his life so far, that mm-hmm. he is involved in all these things. I think the police have a really good idea of what he's been up to, but just not enough evidence. It's all circumstantial. Yeah, exactly. Um, again, his arrogance is shown again, because when the verdict was delivered of him, you know, being acquitted, he was blowing kisses to the jury. Oh, what style. Mm-hmm. 
Shortly after this, he was charged again with something. So this time he was charged with conspiracy to defraud. This was linked to his timeshare scam. And he was also charged with fraud, firearm possession and money laundering. At this trial, um, this is just a, a key example of how arrogant he was. At this trial, he represented himself. He sacked his entire legal team and he defended himself in one of the longest fraud trials in British legal history. And his defence was, he was so rich that why would he need to get involved in fraud? Never mind the fact that that's how he got so rich, but that was his defence. The, um, the deliberation was a record 21 days, so the jury deliberating on this for 21 days... And after this point, he was sentenced to eight years in prison. So they did find him guilty. So it obviously didn't work representing himself. No, I think a lot of people, when I was researching this, basically said it was just a bit ridiculous. Like people were advising him, like, don't represent yourself. And he was like, no, I can do that. Maybe he sort of wanted a break from everything at this point and thought, oh, can I <laughs> give it a go, feed the ego, and if I go to prison, yeah. maybe people were after him. Yeah, possibly. So he was sentenced to eight years in prison. And he only served four. That's pretty normal. Yeah, it is quite um, standard. Not really very good, personally, my opinion. But he, when he was released, they actually allowed him to spend his time on bail between Tenerife and the UK. So he'd continued that sort of the fraud and the timeshare scam while he was in prison. And then when he came out, he just kind of went straight back to it. Something I loved that I found out about him is that back in the UK, when he was living in Tenerife, he had bodyguards sort of who patrolled the grounds of his house. And he had two Rottweilers. Guess what they were called? Reggie and Ronnie. Close. Brinks and Matt. Oh. Amazing. His timeshare scheme had helped him to build a fortune of around £300 million, and it got him to 105th on the Sunday Times Rich List in 1996. Um, in the article, there was like a picture of the Queen where she was on the list and he was next to the picture of the Queen. Um, he hosted like a massive party to celebrate with all his friends and family around. And at one point in his speech, he said, Who'd have believed it? As rich as Her Majesty the Queen. Not bad for a kid who couldn't read or write. The drinks were on me. He was just loving that he'd got this this far. As if his ego couldn't be fed anymore, he's featured mm -hmm. next to the Queen of England, yeah. Exactly. So he owned 122 companies, many of which were offshore in the Isle of Man, Madeira and the British Virgin Islands. He also had 60 offshore bank accounts. And yeah, this lifestyle that he was living was the type of life that we all dream of. He had private jets, he had a yacht, he had helicopters, loads of nice cars. He was just living the life. But he wasn't stupid and he knew that he was vulnerable to all those people he'd scammed. There was like 20,000 victims. Um, and he actually took to wearing body armour underneath his designer suits when he'd go out. So I guess it's not stupid that he, he knew he was at risk. He's obviously concerned if he's got bodyguards wearing body armour as mm. well. He knew that he was a potential target. Definitely. So as we'll come on to, I guess, towards the end when he is murdered, as we've already given that spoiler, <laughs> he maybe he dropped his guard at that point. Yeah, I think it is true. I think by that point, I think he'd, he'd kind of come away from that life, according to his family. So there you go. Um, he wasn't just a criminal, so he was also a bit of a naughty boy in his private life as well. 
So he was married to his wife, Marnie, in 1975. And when he'd moved to Tenerife that time when he'd fled the country and he was in Spain and he moved to Tenerife, she'd gone back to the UK. Um, while he was running his timeshare scheme, he hired a woman called Christine Ketley as a business advisor. And then he moved her into his apartment. That old chestnut. Mm-hmm. Mm. He called her his Tenerife wife. Marnie knew about her and hated her. So she, you know, he wasn't exactly hiding it. But then maybe she was happy to put up with yeah. his adultery for a lavish lifestyle. Exactly. She's back in the UK living it up as well. Um, there was a third woman, which people don't know if the two women knew about her or not. There's Nobody knows the definite. But there was a third woman called Saskia Mundinga. I don't know if I said that right. She was a German student who worked as a sales rep for Palmer's timeshare operation. And she fell pregnant with his kid. When she went back to Germany to go and give birth, he actually followed her on his private plane. And he insisted on being there for the birth. But basically, he was really scared of being deported because he could have been back from Germany. So he got back to Tenerife. Um, And so he just left her there with an allowance of reportedly £60,000 a year to bring up his son. Soon after that, Christine, Tenerife wife, She also got pregnant, so Palmer had quite a busy few years. He had like three, basically three families that he was juggling. During the trial where he um, was on trial for the the one where he like was defending himself, Mm. the media was loving the fact that he had a wife and a mistress. They called them the redhead and the blonde, which I just thought was such like a newspaper headline. He would always profess his love for his wife and said that they were sticking together. So all the way through the trial, that was what they stuck to. But it wasn't true. So while he was in prison, like I said before, they were continuing the timeshare scam and Ketley was the one kind of running it for him while he was in in prison. And when he was released from prison, Palmer and Ketley then decided to go back to Essex to retire together. So um, actually, it wasn't the wife after all. They then sort of lived this luxury life and just lived there happily Mm, um, with the proceeds of their crimes Mm. funding their lives. Now we're going to go back to 2015. So it was the 24th of June and John Palmer was in his garden at home and had started a bonfire to burn some paperwork. His son James Ketley was at home with his girlfriend and they were in the home gym working out. Christine Ketley had gone out and Palmer was alone outside. The police believed that the killer was spying on Palmer through a hole that had been drilled in the fence, watching as he moved around in the garden. Christine later described this as the killer had stalked him like an animal. The killer leapt over the fence, took aim and shot Palmer three times at point-blank range in the chest and then a further three times in the back as he lay on the ground. And according to the police, the shooter then circled Palmer's body before fleeing the scene. What I want to know is how do they know that when they didn't even investigate properly for five days? But that's what they say. When James and his girlfriend noticed Palmer outside on the ground, they didn't think for a minute that he'd been shot. Instead, they called for an ambulance and attempted to resuscitate him. The paramedics performed CPR, but it was just too late. Wouldn't there be loads of blood if he'd been shot six times? Well, I don't know, because I guess it depends on if the bullets exited the body or not. If they're just inside, you'd just be internally bleeding, wouldn't you? Perhaps. Yeah. I mean... They assumed he'd fallen off his quad bike that had opened his operation scar, so maybe that's what they mm. assumed the blood was for. So he'd had heart surgery about a month before. A month yeah. before, yeah. Um, he had this medical history of heart problems anyway as well, so it would be quite reasonable if it wasn't 
someone who was a gangster to assume that he'd just fallen off his quad bike. Perhaps he'd fallen off because of his heart problems or... Could have had a heart attack. Exactly. Um, also, obviously, CPR is so violent, you're covered in bruising anyway, so that would have covered up a lot of, like, injuries that you could see, I suppose. If you've got someone in, and they're fully clothed and then you've performed CPR... I just think if you're pumping that chest mm. and somebody's got an open, open, several open wounds, shock wounds, blood is going to be spurting out. I don't know. I think, like, the paramedics would be trained. They, there must have been a reason why they didn't... I don't know. But, yeah, they didn't realise that this was the gangster Goldfinger, John Palmer. So they just kind of sent him off to the morgue. And five days later, they did the post-mortem and then realised all of these bullet holes. Can you imagine if you were the police chiefs that were summoned to Scotland Yard to explain? So how did you miss the fact that this gangster has been shot six times in his garden with bullets that are designed to fragment on impact? I mean... There you go. There was that worry because obviously, like you said earlier, there was a worry about the police um, purposefully allowing the killer to escape. But basically what I read was when they realised it was just incompetence rather than corruption, they opened up an investigation. They just realised that they just hadn't looked into it properly. The murder has been described as having all of the hallmarks of a professional hit. But by this point, the trail to find the shooter was already cold. So, I've told you all about John Palmer's life and all of the crimes that he's been linked to, whether or not he's actually officially been linked to them, we can't say. Um, and we've looked at his death, so him being shot, you know, how horrific as well. Shot in his back garden, close, you know, point blank range. It's awful. The next thing to think about then is who killed him, because obviously it is still an open case and his family is still to this day asking for leads and asking for information. I saw something even today, actually, this had gone quiet for months and his wife has just written a book and she did an interview with The Telegraph mm. yesterday and she said that there is more chance of the police finding Lord Lucan than mm. nailing down who killed her husband. I think she's right, to be fair. I think like this is one of these that's just never we're never gonna. Find I think out. it's definitely for me based on everything we've heard, the life that he led. I think it's definitely a professional hit. Yeah, but there's lots of options of who did the professional hit because I agree with you. I think it's I think this sounds professional. I think to be able to get in, get out, go, you know, I just think this is professional and the type of weapon used. It's not like someone's just run up and stabbed him. I think to kill him in his own home, mm -hmm. essentially, albeit in the garden with other family members present. Mm -hmm. They could have walked out at any yeah. time. This is somebody who has done their homework. They they know his routine. Mm -hmm. They've potentially been watching him for days and just biding their time, waiting for that moment to leap over the fence and shoot him. Yeah. And that probably took 20 seconds mm -hmm. and it was all over. Exactly. So there are loads of theories. We'll try and cover quite a few of them. Um, and actually, his family have put up a reward for £100,000 for any information that leads to a conviction. So if we manage to solve this, we could be in the money. Mm. Mm. So, first of all, as well as the charges that Palmer was facing in Spain for fraud, money laundering, possession of firearms, etc., that he was also facing in the UK... Um, after his death, it was revealed that Palmer had opened up the first ever Russian timeshare company in the 1990s. 
So a lot of people are wondering, was that a scam as well? Did he piss off the wrong people? Um, he would have had enemies in Spain, but then also Russia as well. So perhaps he's if, got enemies across... If you're talking Russians, don't they just poison people? Do you, well, was it even Russians that poison people? Mm, we're getting into a whole other case. Mm, yeah, we yeah. could definitely do a whole other case yeah. though, couldn't we? Um, Palmer's also been linked to the Russian mob. So another link there. Romanian gangsters. There was also a businessman from Lebanon who had links to Al-Qaeda that he was linked to. And then obviously all of those British criminals that he was involved with in his early life, with the bricks and that stuff, all of that as well. Um, it's also been suggested that he had connections with the Secret Service, but nothing's been proven either way. Um, in 2017, a 50-year-old man was questioned by police on suspicion of the murder. There's been nothing much released about this guy, except that he was 50 years old and originally from Tyneside, and he was living in Spain at the time. But he volunteered for the interview and he was never arrested. So clearly nothing much has come of that. But I wonder if he was one of those links. But the police would have... He wouldn't just volunteer out of the blue. They the would police have must have approached him, him, yeah. And he said, yes, that's fine. Mm. I will have to be questioned without exactly, being arrested yeah. Yeah. and dragged into custody to have an interview but mm. there's got to be some kind of link there or you know that that was looked at exactly as a potential but yeah the police haven't released anything so that was only last year and they're still obviously following up on leads um so one family has been mentioned a lot as the suspects the adams family no of them yeah yeah so not the film which although morticia and gomez are absolute marriage goals i love those films but they are the crime family from north london they're one of the most feared crime syndicates in the country. They've been linked to over 25 murders, but I'm sure there's probably more. And it said that one of the family had placed a hit on Palmer, and when the police offered him protection, he'd refused that. But I can't, I couldn't find when this hit and the offer of protection was. Because that would be interesting to know if that was recent times in the run-up to his death, then why didn't mm -hmm. he have bodyguards and security yeah. patrolling his estate. I mean, I got the impression that that was a lot earlier. It was back when he was being a criminal, when he had that lifestyle, whereas mm. from everything I've read and from what his family have said, he, at this point in 2015, was just living his life. He wasn't really involved in that lifestyle anymore. It's interesting that he's lived that life of crime and then moved away from mm. that and was then living this more sedate life in Essex with his wife and yeah. his son, who was early 20s-ish at the time, but still lived at home. And something's come back mm -hmm. all those years later. Somebody has come back with a score to settle, potentially from the old times. Yeah. Or was John Palmer up to no good again? Exactly. Maybe he got bored living in Essex, on his quad bike, on his ride on mower. <laughs> There was only so much he could take, perhaps. Exactly. So it could just be that he, like you said, let his guard down and somebody was biding their time. But yeah, it could be that he was still continuing his, his naughty lifestyle. He had also been linked with Albanian, Romanian and Kosovan gangsters. They were controlling drugs and organised cheap, cheap labour scams on the Canary Islands. So sometimes people have linked him with that. Um, the one that I thought was probably quite interesting, that I thought was really good for myself as a theory, was loads of the criminals to, that were involved in the Brinks-Matt robbery didn't get payouts. 
So there were only three people prosecuted for the new heist, but obviously there were so many other people that were involved. And one of the people said, um, as a quote, that they had been fucked for their money. So I'm wondering whether somebody involved in that saw him get away with it, basically, saw him then go on to this lavish lifestyle, and yet that person had basically got none of the proceeds of it. They hadn't been prosecuted for the crime, but what if they just didn't get anything out of it? So do you think they ordered a hit or they killed him? I guess it would depend on the person, whether they're a professional who would know hitmen. So yeah, maybe they ordered a hit, or if they're the sort of person who'd be willing to go and do something like that. Um, it could be that they like yeah, were waiting until they saw he had his guard down and then thought, right, I'll take my chance. They're not really going to get their money back from doing this. They're not going to gain anything from but it. It's the honour, isn't it? Mm. Could have been jealousy. Yeah. You know, he's got this and I don't. So that was my favourite theory. What's so? What's your favourite out of? I think it's so difficult with him because his life of crime has touched so many mm -hmm. different countries and groups of people. We've got, you know, essentially the security services in this country. We've got the Russian mob. We've got Albanian gangsters. Mm -hmm. We've got just basically, it's almost taken thick. He, so many people would have had a score to settle against him. Yeah. And I don't, I think that's probably why it's never going to be solved because this is a guy that fucked off millions of people mm -hmm. in what is probably a 50-year criminal career. It could even be someone that he scammed that, you know, who's just a normal person in a normal life, got scammed in Tenerife and decided, you know what, I'm going to do this. I think the nature... Not that I think, you know, a normal 55-year-old man who just works in a normal job is going to do that, but could be. I think the nature of the execution really is mm. very professional. Yeah. That is true. And that does make you think it's a professional. So whether that's been a professional hide by mm. a scam victim or it's somebody linked with the Russian mob or Albanian gangsters, I think it's a professional hit. Yeah, definitely agree about that. That brings us to the end of the story of John Palmer, otherwise known as Goldfinger. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed our first ever episode of Seeing Red and that you'll be joining us again next week. You can join in the discussion on our Facebook page. And if you have any theories that you would like to put forward, we would love to hear those. Yeah. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and find us on Patreon. And we would absolutely love any feedback that you have on today's episode. So um, feel free to reach out to us on those social media platforms or you can email us at info at seeingredpodcast.com uh, or give us a review. Definitely. We'd love to hear any feedback that you have for us. It is our first episode after all. We'd also like, before we go, to say a huge thank you to Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and Adam at UK True Crime. They have helped us out loads with getting us started on our podcast. And so many other people as well in the true crime podcasting community. So thank you so much, guys. All that remains then is for us to thank you again for listening, and we'll see you again next week.